I'll invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14 today. So we will read that far and then... Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we'll carry on in verse 15 and see where we get. So, uh, Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you, you shall, you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We are looking again today at the Abrahamic covenant. And in chapter 17, what I think should be understood as the climax of God's giving this covenant to Abraham. Uh, This Abrahamic covenant is not a simple matter to look at and to consider, and it's that way for a number of reasons. Uh, For starters, the giving of this covenant unfolds over the course of several chapters. Uh, Particularly, we think back to chapter 12, where Abram was called to this land of sojourning, and he's given certain promises Then again in chapter 15, where there's that covenant-making ceremony, where that smoking pot and torch go through, pass through the parts. And God guarantees there that he's going to promise, or guarantees that he's going to do that which he has promised by way of this covenant ceremony. And then now in chapter 17, where we have the promises being confirmed and even expanded. But then we also now have this, requirement placed upon Abraham and his male descendants, this requirement of obedience, namely circumcision. 
Until now, it has really been God making promises to Abram, and then Abram is just believing those promises. But now there is this stipulation where he's called to keep the covenant, and he's to keep it by being circumcised. And then there's even in verse 14 a threat of being cut off if somebody doesn't, cut off from this covenant. So how to try to fit all of these things together uh, is something of a challenge, and it's something that Bible-believing Christians uh, have had disagreements on and take different approaches to it. Additionally, the very promises themselves that are made to Abraham can be a little bit tricky uh, when we try to consider what exactly is this thing being promised. Uh, It might seem obvious at first There are very clearly earthly promises being made here of a particular land and many offspring and nations and kings and so on. But then as we've also been seeing as we've been studying the life of Abraham and as even as we read earlier from Romans 4, the New Testament makes clear that there's more going on here, that Abraham is even looking beyond just the earthly things he's being promised and he understands that there's more to all of this that God is going to do. Further, in the New Testament, again, we read some from Romans 4. We think of Galatians 3 as well. We see that Christians today, believers now, are called offspring of Abraham, even if we're not physical descendants of the man. Rather, we are spiritual offspring of his. So even in John chapter 8, for example, Jesus is... Uh, sparring, disputing with the Jews there. And they're claiming, well, we have Abraham as our father, and that's what they're staking their claim on, that they're good to go with the Lord. And Jesus tells them that actually Satan is their father. He disputes their claim. He says if you were really his offspring, you would do what he did. You would believe as he believed, and you would do the works he did out of that faith. And so Jesus himself there is clearly distinguishing between one who is merely a physical descendant of Abraham, which those Jews certainly were, and those who were spiritual offspring, true offspring, who believe as Abraham did. So there's a lot going on here, and uh, hopefully I'll do my best to try to help us understand uh, what's happening in chapter 17. And and before we dive into 17, I'm going to give just a bit of an extended introduction before we jump in Uh, to verses 1 to 14 to hopefully uh, set the stage for us a little bit. Uh, As we have been going through Genesis, we've been tracing this promise that has been made, this promise of uh, an offspring who is to come and who would overthrow the curse of sin, who would destroy the devil uh, and bring man into eternal rest. Uh, The promise was made first in Genesis 3.15, even as God is Pronouncing the curse of sin uh, on account of Adam's sin, he also promises this offspring will come. And we've been pointing out as we've gone this, the development of this promise and the continued um, places where God uh, expands this promise, clarifies this promise. And the fact that Old Testament saints in Genesis were looking for the coming of that offspring, even uh, Noah's own father naming him Noah, uh, saying maybe this one will give us rest Uh, from all of our work, in other words, from this curse that we are under. And so the whole focus of Genesis, if you recall, is to gradually narrow in our focus from all of creation and all of humanity 
towards a particular family line that's going to produce this particular offspring. So even the structure of the book, if you remember, uh, where it's, these are the generations of, these headings throughout Genesis are, are narrowing the focus in on this particular individual. And in chapter 12, Abram, after God had confused the languages of man and scattered them across the, the, the world as they were supposed to do, As these nations are formed, Abram then is called out of these wayward nations, and God promises him that through his offspring, blessing would come to all the families of the earth. And Galatians 3 very explicitly confirms to us that that was ultimately the promise of the gospel, namely that the the promise that this offspring of the woman, this Messiah, is going to come from Abraham's line. And that he's going to bring a blessing not just to Abraham's own family, but to all the nations of the earth, or all the families of the earth. And we are told that Abram believed God, and that this was counted to him as righteousness. That he was justified by faith, believing that God was going to do this believing in the Messiah who was yet to come, looking forward to that day. Remember, Christ himself taught us in John that Abraham saw my day, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it from afar and was glad. But there's more going on with Abram than simply giving him that promise. We know, of course, that it's going to be many years later that Christ is going to arrive in Bethlehem. Uh, roughly around 2,000 years after Abraham. And what God was doing here was he is also laying the foundation of what will become known as the Old Covenant. So in the New Testament, it speaks of the New Covenant that Christ brings about in his blood, and it contrasts that often with the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant includes the Abrahamic Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant. And we could include within that the Davidic Covenant as well, though it factors in slightly differently. But basically, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. In fact, that's what testament means, uh, covenant. So with Abraham, you have both... The promise that the Messiah is going to come from his line. So the Messiah is going to come and he's going to bring about the new covenant. And you also have the foundation of the old covenant being established through Abraham. Another way to say that is that both the old and the new covenants will come forth from Abraham, though in different ways. So the the Old Covenant, it is established with the physical offspring of Abraham through Isaac, as we'll see next week more, and then through Jacob specifically. And they, the physical offspring of Abraham, are given this land of Canaan. And this covenant is a covenant of works governing life in the land of Canaan, which means, what I mean by that is that they had to obey certain stipulations and laws in order to live long in the land, in order to enjoy the blessings that were promised within that old covenant. 
Now, it does not promise, that covenant does not bring about eternal salvation by obedience, but rather we're talking temporal earthly blessings in the land of Canaan. The new covenant is promised also in Abraham, but does not become formalized until Christ comes and inaugurates it in his blood. This covenant, the new covenant, is made with Christ and Abraham's spiritual offspring, all who would believe as Abraham believed. And this is the covenant that does indeed bring eternal salvation. And so, in the Old Testament, under this old covenant, you would receive the blessings of the new covenant in advance. So you would receive the blessings of forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation even prior to Jesus Christ coming. And you received this, as Abraham did, by faith, by believing this promise of the Messiah to come. Uh, this is what we we read in Romans chapter 4, where it's saying there that justification has always been based on faith in the promise. It wasn't uh, given when Abraham kept circumcision. He was already justified before chapter 17. We read of that in chapter 15 by simply believing, by faith. So what this means then, in the old, under the old covenant... You had some who were both physical and spiritual offspring of Abraham. That is, they physically descended from him and they believed as Abraham believed. But you also had some who were merely only his physical offspring that didn't believe as Abraham believed. And that's what Jesus was encountering in John chapter 8, for example. But we see this throughout the history of Israel. Now, both of those types of people were in the Old Covenant. It was was a mixed covenant. You had believers and unbelievers in it. And that Old Covenant didn't guarantee faith, nor did it bring salvation by obedience to it. The Old Covenant had its various rules and regulations and institutions. Think of all that went on with the temple. These were all important. They were important in and of themselves for life in the land of Canaan in a way that the faithful would indeed worship God, if we're talking about the temple. So they were important in and of themselves, but they also served a typological function teaching about the salvation that Christ would one day bring. So if you remember a few weeks back when we looked at Melchizedek, in Christ, we, we talked more about typology and what that is, these figures and patterns and individuals and institutions in the Old Testament that are pointing forward to something that is greater yet to come. And believers like Abraham, they could see that those, those things, like the temple, well, it's bef- later than Abraham's day, but these earthly promises and realities that God was giving under the Old Covenant, that they were indeed pointing yet to something greater yet to come. They understood that this was all 
preparation for something more that was still to come. And this is why the New Testament tells us that Abraham was looking forward to the time of Christ. That he was looking ultimately to a city beyond even the land of Canaan. And so the promise of the offspring to come, which we have been examining and and drawing attention to as we have opportunity through Genesis, a, a major concern of the book of Genesis This promise, though the Messiah is not going to come for a long time yet, this promise is going to be housed, if you will, within this nation of Israel, who is under this old covenant with God. The Messiah will come from among Abraham's physical offspring, and he will be the one to bring about salvation. And so, what we have in chapter 17 then, is first of all revealing to us this old covenant, the foundation of the old covenant. We have these promises pertaining to physical offspring and this land of Canaan. And so I want us to look at those things and and see and understand that. But these things are also pointing beyond that as types to greater realities that are yet to come. And I want us to see those things as well. So we're going to go through this and look at what it has to say about the Old Covenant and then look at how these things are types pointing to Christ and to the New Covenant. And so this particular sermon, there's a little more teaching in this one perhaps uh, than others, but I hope if we can grasp even a little more of, of this, it will help us to not only rejoice in God's wisdom and His plan, but also to rejoice rightly in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the two main sections here of verses 1 to 14. Uh, the first section is in verses 1 to 8. And we see here the promises confirmed and expanded. The promises are confirmed and expanded. So let's begin again in verse 1. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Well, this forms something of the prelude, the introduction to what will follow in this chapter. But notice here, 13 more years have passed by since the end of chapter 16. Ishmael was born at the end of chapter 16 and he was... Abram was 86 years old at that time, and now all of a sudden he's 99. Just like that, 13 years have passed by. And the Lord identifies himself to him as God Almighty here, El Shaddai. And while God could use many of his divine names to reveal himself to Abram here, this one is particularly appropriate given that he is going to confirm great promises to Abram, and as we'll see more next week in verses 15 and following, great promises to Sarai that she's going to yet bear a child. And if these things that he's promising are all to come to pass, this is going to definitely require the Almighty God in order to make this happen. If things look bleak in chapter 16 when they concoct this plan with Sarah, Things were looking bleak for, uh, with Hagar, sorry. Things were looking bleak for Sarah to have a baby. Uh, 13 years later, this isn't looking any better. 
But God Almighty is on it. And Abram is exhorted here to walk before God blamelessly. He's told to walk uprightly in holiness before the Lord, before the face of God. I don't think that for the 13 years, Abram was just simply living in wild rebellion or anything like that. But it certainly does read here as something of a rebuke to the ungodly scheming of chapter 16. As if God's saying, enough of this, straighten up, walk and and live uprightly before me as is fitting for my servant who is receiving such great promises from me. And so Abram responds to this this introduction from the Lord, by falling on his face. He falls on his face. This is appropriate. He's in humility before God. And then the Lord proceeds in verse 4, saying, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In these verses, we have a number of promises being confirmed here to Abram. Some of them are repeated from earlier chapters, things that we have already seen, but some of them are also enlarged or expanded. So not only is he going to have a lot of offspring come after him, but there are going to be a multitude of nations coming from Abraham. We know, of course, that the Ishmael, Ishmaelites will come from him, Later we'll see the Midianites, the Edomites, and more will all descend from Abram. But of course, the covenant people will be through Isaac and then through Jacob, which again we'll see more next week. The Lord then changes Abram's name here to Abraham. From a name, Abram meaning exalted father, to Abraham meaning the father of a multitude, to just confirm this as a token to Abraham. He will surely do this. And then the Lord adds that kings will come from him. So perhaps this has been implied earlier in the promises made, but now explicitly there's this promise of royalty. Certainly we can think of David, who would come from Abraham's line, a great king, Solomon. There's a couple other decent kings, some not so decent ones, but but kings are going to come from his line. Further, God promises here that he will be the God of Abraham and his offspring. Now, obviously, we confess and understand God, there is only one God. And so there is, in one sense, we say he is everyone's God, right? Whether one knows it or not, there's only one God. He is the creator. Everybody is accountable to him. So he is, in that sense, everybody's God. But what he means here is that he will be the God in a unique sense to this covenant people he is creating. He will be their covenant God. He will be their God in a special way, 
by virtue of this covenant. It will distinguish them from among all of the other peoples of the earth. And then finally here, with regard to the promises made, the promise of land is again reiterated here. And it is explicitly said to be the land of Canaan. So I think in some ways those promises are relatively straightforward. But we can also see how these realities point beyond themselves to greater things that will come through Christ. And I think it's, I'm right in, in understanding it this way, and I think for a number of reasons. But this includes, among the reasons, the fact that in Romans chapter 4, I don't know if you caught it, but in Romans 4 verse 17, Paul quotes from Genesis 17 verse 5, where God promises to make Abraham a father of a multitude of nations. And Paul tells us that this was being fulfilled as Gentiles in Paul's day were believing the gospel. So the gospel going out to the Gentiles, and that word just means nations, that was fulfilling this promise made to Abraham in some way. It was making Abraham the father of a multitude of nations as his spiritual offspring would believe from every tribe, nation, and tongue. During the time under the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, God allowed the nations to, for the most part, wander in darkness for many years. And this was a judgment upon them. We even read a little bit of that in Psalm 9. But now, after Christ comes, the Great Commission goes out into all of the earth. And God is publishing good news to the nations. And so Gentiles become offspring, spiritual offspring of Abraham when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus they share in the same faith as Abraham. Faith in the promise. Abraham was looking forward. We are understanding that the Christ has come. And so this is partly why I say that all of these physical promises to Abraham for physical offspring, land, and so on, also teach us about something greater as well. They are types teaching of what will come through Christ one day. Not only physical offspring from Abraham, but spiritual offspring from all over the world. So yes, Abraham is the father of many nations physically that descend from him. But also, because the Messiah brings blessing of salvation to the nations, he is also the father of a multitude of nations in that sense, as Paul is telling us in Romans 4. Abraham would have kings come from him. This would include, again, men like David, But of course, ultimately, the great and ultimate King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be born according to the flesh from Abraham's line, the King of Kings. In the land of Canaan, it's described as a land that was flowing with milk and honey. It was a wonderful land that God gave to the physical descendants of Abraham. And it points ahead. Likewise, to the eternal land of promise, the heavenly city, which Hebrews 11 tells us very clearly, Abraham was also looking forward to. 
And then, of course, the promise here that God will be the God of his physical descendants. We understand that that didn't mean that all of the physical descendants of Abraham were saved. So we also see in this the greater promise that through faith in the promise, through faith in Christ, whether one was looking forward to him in Old Testament times or today, all who believe as Abraham believed have God as our God in a saving fashion. And we have him as our God forever and always. Now, I'll maybe just note here that when it describes the promises and this covenant as everlasting, pertaining to the old covenant, we see that word a few times here. I agree with those who say that we must understand this to mean that for the old covenant, that it would last in all succeeding ages until the Messiah would come. As long as it was required, as long as it was needed, until the fullness of time would bring the true offspring to fulfill all that this was pointing towards and inaugurate the new covenant, at which point Hebrews tells us the old covenant would become obsolete and indeed would pass away. And I think the New Testament demands that understanding of this And uh, that is a a legitimate understanding even of this Hebrew word that's being translated here as everlasting. That it doesn't necessarily mean eternal. But again, the ultimate promise of what Christ would come and bring in salvation is eternal. So the descendants of Abraham, who were merely physical descendants, who didn't share his faith, They would basically only really see the physical promises. And everything for them was terminating on this. It was all about circumcision, being a Jew, the temple, Jerusalem, the land of Israel. And we can see this in Jesus' time when he comes. Even even the, the promise of blessing all the nations of the earth seems to have been largely completely missed by many. For them, all the promises would terminate on the earthly. But those of faith saw these earthly promises and realities as teaching and preparing for greater realities that the Messiah would bring about. They had their place under the old covenant, but they were pointing and teaching about greater things still to come also. So that's the promises. But let's continue on to the second section here in verses 9 to 14. And look at the condition and the sanction that's given here. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. 
So here now we have this command for Abraham and for his physical offspring to keep my covenant. And they would do this by obeying this command to circumcise their male offspring and any foreigners who would also join them. This is a necessity for the men in the covenant. This condition of circumcision was a significant one. It was understood to be extremely important. Uh, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, before he's stoned, he, he would sum up the Abrahamic covenant as the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision be brought forward in the Mosaic covenant. It's part of that. Again, these two covenants make up the old covenant together. And then even in the New Testament, we see this issue of circumcision amongst believers in Christ was still a major issue. We see it all over the pages of the New Testament, grappling with it as some were asserting you have to be circumcised if you are to be saved. Otherwise, you're cut off. They made this a condition of one being justified. We see that in Galatians. We see it in Romans. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it in the background of many pages of Scripture. We see it in Philippians as well. Mutilators of the flesh, Paul calls them. In verse 11, circumcision is called the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his offspring after him. If you remember back after the flood, when the Noahic covenant was made, a sign was also given at that time, a sign of the covenant, namely the rainbow. And we talked about how this was a reminder, ultimately, that served those who would see it to remember that God is faithful and he will assuredly keep his promises, particularly his promise not to wipe out the earth with another flood. And so here we have another sign tied to this covenant that God is making with Abraham. And the sign has a similar function, though a little different. But this sign, circumcision, would mark out the people that are in this covenant with God. They would be marked out by, yes, they live in the land of Canaan and they are circumcised, the males. And it would remind them, it was to be a reminder that God would indeed keep his promises. And I would also add that it was intended to remind them further that they are set apart to God and they are meant to obey God. They are meant to keep his laws. And so the primary purpose of circumcision is to, to mark them out as a people. And so as we think about this promise throughout Genesis that we've been following of the offspring is going to come, this is going to come not just from who knows where, somewhere on the earth, but from a specific geographical location, the land of Canaan, and specifically from the people that are in this covenant with God marked out by this sign of circumcision. And then let's look at verse 14 where we have a sanction placed here. This is, again, heightens the significance and importance of circumcision under the old covenant. Verse 14 says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This old covenant was one that was to be kept by Abraham and his offspring under threat of being cut off. It was a covenant that people could 
break. And they could lose their place in. If you don't cut the foreskin, you'll be cut off from the covenant. Now again, this raises some questions for us. Because certain promises, as we've noted, have been made to Abraham that God has guaranteed he's going to bring to pass. So, for example, back in chapter 15, you remember, when there's that covenant-making ceremony, God was saying, essentially, may it be done to me, and more so, if I do not fulfill what I have promised to fulfill. And so we have guaranteed God's going to make these things come to pass, but now we have something being contingent on circumcision here, or else you're not going to benefit from it. So how do we understand this? Well, the the best way, I think, to understand this, it's not unique to me, but is to see that God's promise to give the land to Abraham's offspring was indeed guaranteed by God. He would assuredly do that. But individual participation in that was contingent upon obedience to this precept. You could forfeit your right to be part of what God was doing if you failed to obey God in circumcision. You could be cut off. So if you remember to Exodus chapter 4 with Moses, do you remember after he has seen the Lord in the burning bush and he's on his way back to Egypt, there's this weird short account where God sought to put him to death. And then his wife intervenes and stops that from happening by doing what? By circumcising their son. Right? So even Moses was threatened by God if he doesn't circumcise his son. So this is what I mean by the old covenant being a covenant of works. Works or obedience must be performed in order to receive those Benefits, those external benefits the covenant was giving. God's going to do what he promised to do, but individual participation in that was contingent upon obedience. And so when the people of Israel would later on come out of Egypt, they'd receive more laws. Circumcision was the starting point, but more laws would be added to them. And very explicitly, there would be blessings if you obey, long life in the land of Canaan, crops will do well, etc. Or curses if you disobey, culminating in being kicked out of the land. And this is why, if you think of the wilderness generation, this is why they never made it into the land. Because of their unbelief and the resulting disobedience. Even Moses, who was a man of faith, who believed as Abraham believed. He was denied entrance into Canaan because of his disobedience. He did not lose his salvation, but he did lose the right to Canaan. And yet, does this make God unfaithful? Not at all. God was faithful to do all that he promised to do, and he would bring offspring of Abraham into the land of Canaan under Joshua. And furthermore, for all of the disobedience that we know will accompany the offspring of Abraham, God would not fail to send the Christ through them to bless the world. 
Well, as we think about conditions and this condition of circumcision, obedience, this threat, this sanction, how, how does this, what does this point to as we think about this in a typological way? Because if we confuse this too badly, we can end up laboring under legalism. So let's take a few minutes to look at this. Some argue that circumcision, which was important under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, is now replaced with baptism in the New Testament. They were to circumcise infants, and so we now, as a sign of the New Covenant, are to baptize babies. And I think this, what this does is flattens out the distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So there's a number of reasons I think this is wrong. But one of them is that the New Testament reveals that circumcision was pointing ahead to the need for regeneration. That is to say, the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision was a requirement that was pointing to the importance and necessity of obedience. And this would require a right heart before the Lord if it was to be a true obedience. On Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, still with Moses, he says to the people, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And then later in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he would prophesy, Moses would, about a time when God would perform that circumcision of the heart on all of God's people who were in covenant with him. The sinful heart needs circumcising, not simply the foreskin. Romans chapter 2 verse 29 says that true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Colossians chapter 2 calls it the circumcision of Christ that is made without hands by the putting off of the flesh. This is talking again, all of this, about regeneration. And this is something, the importance of having a new heart is something that the new covenant in Christ does provide for all who believe. This regeneration enables us to meet the condition of faith. We're called to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It requires a new heart, and God gives that to those who believe in Christ. It is one of the blessings that Christ has secured for us and provides for us. And this regeneration, which Christ also calls being born again, is the mark that distinguishes now those who are in the new covenant. The requirement for entrance into the covenant, the new covenant, is not about physical descent from Abraham. It's not about physical descent from believing parents. It's about receiving regeneration of the heart, being born again. It is absolutely necessary, Christ says, if you are to see, if you are to enter the kingdom. Old Testament believers like Abraham, they were regenerated. They were regenerated in an advanced experience of the blessings that Christ would come and secure. 
And not everyone under the old covenant believed that. Again, it was only the spiritual offspring, those who believed as Abraham did. And today, in light of the New Testament's clearer teaching, where this mystery has been unfolded further, we know that it occurs, this regeneration of the heart, when the Spirit of God awakens the dead sinner to new life through the preaching of the gospel, in which this circumcision of the heart made without hands is performed by the Lord through the Spirit, slicing away that sinful flesh, making that sinner new and alive. And this is what marks out the members then of the new covenant community now. It is a new heart that believes upon Christ and then goes on out of that to walk in a new life unto him. This is the new covenant reality that circumcision points to. Something that is the possession of all who are in the new covenant. As for conditions more generally, it is true that God demands righteousness from human beings. But when it comes to the ultimate matter of eternity and how it is that one will stand before God, it is no mere fleshly circumcision that is going to be sufficient. That could never be something that would tip the scale. So you were close, but you just didn't circumcise yourself. That would put you over the edge to where you would actually be righteous before God. God's moral law demands perfection of human beings, internally and externally. And the history of Israel will go on to show that mankind cannot bear the weight of God's law, even just keeping the external requirements of the law, never mind being perfect in the heart. Even the best of God's people throughout the scriptures do not perfectly obey the Lord. We're seeing this in Abraham. And so we all, as sinners, deserve the curse and the sanction of death. We stand cursed in Adam, and we have our own sins that warrant us God's judgment, death, the penalty for our sins. But it is the offspring of the woman, promised of old, who comes from Abraham's line according to the flesh, who came to fulfill the conditions that are necessary for our eternal salvation. And that curse of death that we deserve for our sins, the sanction was placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he went to the cross. And he dealt with that by dying in our place, satisfying, paying our debt, turning away God's wrath for our sins. And so it is that the new covenant has been brought about by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it truly is the covenant of grace. God in his mercy graciously bestows the blessings that the offspring of Abraham has secured by his life and his obedience. God bestows these blessings upon us not because of our ability to measure up and obey in all things, not because of circumcision or any other act of obedience, but rather we receive it by faith alone, by believing in Christ Jesus. 
Christ's works and activities, they save. He has fulfilled the requirements. We become heirs of all of that by faith. We come, we are empty-handed. And he gives to us salvation that's full and free. Christ has done it on our behalf. It is truly finished. And so the New Testament is teaching us that this new covenant that Christ has established is built upon better promises, as Hebrews says. It is not just earthly land and earthly wealth and earthly offspring and earthly blessing upon condition of obedience, but it is the promise of eternal life graciously given to us by God based on the obedience of Christ and what he has done for us. And this truly, actually saves us, unlike what was promised under the old covenant and obtained by obedience under the old covenant. They are better promises. And it has always been received by faith as we read in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed. He looked forward He believed that the Messiah would come from among his offspring. And he wouldn't see it all as clearly as we can see it now in light of the New Testament. This is called the mystery of Christ. It is revealed in the Old Testament, but over time and slowly we get more information added to it until the fullness of the revelation comes when the Lord Jesus Christ is born to the Virgin Mary. But the Old Testament saints saw something of it. And they were justified by Christ's work in advance of his coming. And when the Messiah came, the old covenant reached its intended end. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. Christ, the end of the law for righteousness sake. It served various purposes, the old covenant did, which includes being a house, if you will, that would contain the promise of Christ, where again, it would be developed. This mystery of Christ would unfold within this nation of Israel. And it was intended to ultimately produce then the one ultimate offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would then bless all the peoples of the earth by what he would accomplish. This plan unfolds throughout Scripture, and it's not always the simplest thing to trace. But the result of it is most assuredly and clearly God's grace to Christ through sinners that is received by faith alone. And so I encourage you, exhort you, believe this. Rest your soul in what Christ has accomplished Certainly see the appropriateness, the goodness, the rightness of walking blamelessly before God. Strive to that end. But do not put yourself under a covenant of works whereby you feel your obedience is the thing that's going to make the difference. I'm climbing some kind of a ladder here where you fear that you forfeit your right every time your, your right to glory every time you are shown to be a sinner. The new covenant is a better covenant because it actually saves. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness and it is in him 
and his work that we place confidence. And God gives as a gift this righteousness credited to your account. And this is what justifies. This is where we stand on our best of days and on our worst of days as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word. Father, we realize that not all things in the scripture are alike clear. That there are things that are difficult to grasp. But Father, we also thank you that what is crucial to know and understand for our salvation is made clear in your word. Father, that it is Christ Jesus who is the Savior. And all of our hope is to be in him. That all the glory might go to you. Father, we could never obey you sufficiently. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory as your word declares. And so we give you praise and thanks that your son has come and has taken up our cause and that you have shown us your great love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, help us to rest ourselves in what you have done, to rest ourselves in Christ. Father, when our conscience troubles us on account of our sin, may we flee to Jesus and find full assurance and confidence that all who believe are forgiven and are justified. Father, I pray that this would work in us excitement and joy and thankfulness and gratitude out of which we would yearn to to obey you all the more. Father, keep us from the errors of making our obedience somehow the thing that's going to perfect us or get us across the line. Father, your word warns us against that. Father, forgive us where we are prideful in thinking that it is something in us that makes us acceptable to you. Forgive us where we fail to trust you and trust Christ. Father, in the end, he is our righteousness and we thank you that it is so. So, Sanctify us, Father, in this truth. Encourage us and may it be to your glory and to our great joy. And we pray all of this together in Jesus' name. Amen.